Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Welcome everyone to Patrick Boyle on Finance. Today we have Jack Schwager on the show. Jack has been involved in financial markets for over 45 years. He's worked as a market analyst, a trader. He's managed institutional portfolios of managed accounts and has written extensively on the futures industry and on great traders in all financial markets. He's been interviewing the greatest traders in the world since the first Market Wizards book in 1989 and has just released the newest installment of that series, Unknown Market Wizards. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to see you. So I guess um, in order to kind of get going, um, I thought before we dig too deep into the, the stories of the great traders that you've, you've uncovered in this most recent book, I figured we'll, we'll gap back to your, the book you wrote uh, just before, um, Market Sense and Nonsense, which is one of my favorites. Thank you. And um, I guess we should talk a little bit about the efficient market hypothesis and how well you think that holds up. Yeah, so <clears throat> there's no doubt in my mind that the efficient market hypothesis is wrong. Uh, and I have a whole chapter in the book you mentioned with God knows probably a dozen reasons, you know, or proofs or explanations of why that's the case. Um, it's wrong on so many different levels. Uh, well, first, basically, the basic premise of the efficient market hypothesis is that the market, uh, all, all information is known uh, instantaneously. And the market responds instantaneously to all known information. So there's no way you can get an edge in the market. It's uh, You're just kidding yourself and anybody who comes out ahead is just basically lucky. You know, it's just like, you know, at a roulette table, uh, most of the people will lose. Uh, I guess in the markets, maybe the majority of traders will lose because they're all on the wrong side of the mid-ass spread. Um, and uh, although it's different for the markets because you know, the, the contention of the efficient market hypothesis is that you can't get an edge, but of course, in the markets, you can. In any case, uh, that's, the, that's the concept, that everything is known, you can't beat the market. Now, there's so many examples of, of where that is, where you had situations where you can't possibly explain uh, that the markets are efficient. I mean, it's just, and there, well, take take the one of the big ones, Nasdaq. Nasdaq yeah. in the late nineteen nineties. So we have in three, not three years, and it's uh, about eighteen months, a year and a half. The mark, the index of of uh, I think it's in, of the Nasdaq, uh, in the, the internet stock sector. Yeah, that that sector goes up six hundred percent in a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Wow, there must have been some tremendous information coming in, right? And then in the next year and a half after it reaches that high, it goes all the way back down. It's like an 85% loss, which, you know, 600% gain, 85% loss works out about this, come back to the same level. So yeah. you have the, you know, incredible, astounding bull market, an astounding crash. And you must think, wow, what was all this bullish information that came in? And what was all the bearish information that came in, you know, on the decline? 
And I challenge anybody to really go through and explain that what really changed from that big bull market to the big bear market? Well, nothing. There's there was a pre- you know, there's a premise that the internet was going to be big. That's fair. But then you had a whole bunch of companies which had no economic, no economic reason to exist. Companies that like uh, Pets.com, the famous one, which the more they sold, the more they lost because their shipping costs were higher than than their you know than you know what they were getting on a profit. And like I, I, I jokingly say sometimes when I talk about this that they, well they went out of business in ten months, uh, and they would have lasted. I joke they would have lasted longer if they didn't sell so much. <laughs> the more they sold, the quicker they went out, of, the quicker they burned through their capital. In any case, you had all these companies that had no reason to exist. And they, you know, a lot of them went by the wayside, but didn't stop them from going from 10 to 200. Now, was it really bullish news? No, these companies were never economically viable. Yeah. But you had everybody afraid of missing, oh, my neighbor just made it, doubled his money. Everybody's just piling into these same stocks. So it's purely an emotional thing. You can't say, you can't explain it by the market, you know, uh, yeah, uh, reacting to news. So that's on a that's a good example. One other example I'll throw out, I got to see Richard Taylor, who's uh, one of the pioneers of behavioral economics. Yeah. And, you know, and I think behavioral economics is really, I mean, they've got it right from the very beginning about the efficient market hypothesis. Anyway, I saw him when I was living in Seattle um, and he gave this presentation and he had an example. I have a bunch of examples when I give a talk on that, on the same topic, but he had one that I didn't know about and I just loved it. So it's a closed-end fund call with the uh, ticker symbol C-U-B-A, Cuba. Okay. Um, and it invests basically in South and Central America or whatever. You know, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the fund. And as you know, or you might know, clo- your listeners might know, closed-end funds tend to trade at a discount. We don't have to go on a, da- a tangent, yeah. but they're, they're a fixed portfolio and they tend to trade at a discount. And like most closed-end funds, Cuba's trading at a 15% discount, which is not unusual. Yeah. And discount, I mean, if you liquidated the entire portfolio, it would be worth 15% more than yeah. the income's trading. Okay. So one day it goes from a 15% discount to a 70% premium. I mean, you know, so what happened? Well, what happened is President Obama announced we were going to normalize relationships with Cuba. Mm. Now, here's the kicker. Uh, you, you, Cuba doesn't have any stocks. So it just had the, the symbol of the index without that close-end fund was CUBA. But they had no holy, because there are no, were no stocks in, in Cuba. And even if there were stocks, it would have been illegal to invest in stocks in Cuba if, if they even existed. So you, know, you had this move, like an 85% move in one day because of the name. Now you, yeah. you go and tell me the markets are efficient and discount, you know, the price is right. The price is not always right. Yeah. The thing is, the markets, and I can go on and on and on, but let's cut it, cut it to this point. Uh, the thing about the efficient market hypothesis is that, you know, in many situations, it can act, the markets do act like they're random. Yeah. And because the markets are very difficult to beat, and because these, uh, these emotional uh, mispricings that occur are difficult to exploit, because... You know, like the NASDAQ. Well, it shouldn't have gone up. It could have gone up a bit, but not 100 or 200 or 300. But you don't know what the top is at 300%, at 400%, five. So you could go broke multiple times before the market actually tops. So even though one can identify this is definitely a bubble, without doubt, 
it's still very hard to to to, to, to take advantage. Yeah. So it's you know for for the most part the markets do act like they're efficient, even though they're not. Well, a good example, actually, is even, and I think it's from your book, is the example of Palm Pilot in the late yeah. 90s as well. And it was spun off from 3Com, but the, the prices just didn't reflect each other. These two ways of investing in Palm Pilot, you could buy either company, but one had the ticker PALM. And for people who are younger watching this, a Palm Pilot, it's kind of like a Blackberry, which is kind of like an iPhone. But, it, was, it was the iPhone of its day. It was. It was a terrible thing yeah. as well. There was, was a lot of hype. And when, when and, and 3Com was spinning out Palm as a separate subsidiary. But if you own 3Com, you had X number of shares. Yeah. You still, so 3Com was like Palm plus the rest of the company. And when Palm came out that day, there was such a demand for the for the palm yeah. that when you worked out the value of the palm stock in 3Com, the rest of the company was trading at a large negative number. Yeah. Other, the market capitalization of the rest of the company was largely negative, which is impossible to persist. Yeah, because they, they had pro profitable businesses in there. But the funny thing about that even is that wasn't even a big secret. Like you, you could imagine even, we'll say with the closed end mutual funds, that it's sort of a thing that only a few people are watching. But this was in, like, there were cover stories on the Wall Street Journal about this inefficiency in Palm, and it, it continued on for months. Absolutely. And what I love is people say, well, the reason they couldn't couldn't correct this because normally arbitrage would take that right back. Yeah, the the arbitrageurs couldn't do it because they they couldn't get the borrow to go short the palm, and that may be true. But what about those stupid investors who are buying palm when they could have more palm stocks for the same money? Yeah, plus plus the rest of the company. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it doesn't explain the paradox. You can only. So I guess my my follow up question then to to the efficient markets hypothesis is then, if if there are flaws in, I, I think the efficient markets hypothesis is sort of useful for a lot of people in that for for many people I often say if you're a doctor you'd be better off earning a living as a doctor and then investing in an index fund than trying to beat the market, um, but. What are your thoughts on the idea, like if there are these inefficiencies out there, can anyone take advantage of them? Or, uh, you know, what's interesting about your book is, I, I guess many of the people who have done so well in the markets, they're, they're very interesting people, but they're kind of rare people. There's not a ton of them out there. Yeah, so first of all, you know, at the, since you read the book, you know, at the end of the book, probably the last point I make is that, even though I've written about these people who have done enormously well, and I believe that the efficient market hypothesis is, is wrong, ironically, most people would be better off behaving as if it were right, which means for most people, the right advice is buy a low-cost index fund and hold it for 30 years. You know, that's the, the, the exact opposite of trading and uh, the exact opposite of believing the efficient market hypothesis is incorrect. But the distinction is, I think the world can be divided into two, the world of traders slash investors can be divided into two categories. Those for whom trading or investing is a passion and they've developed a methodology that has some edge 
Uh, they've learned proper risk control and they they both enjoy the process and they they have some skill at it. So their, their training is at least net profitable, right? So mm-hmm. that's one group. I mean, not necessarily market risk profitable, but, but they at least, you know, and I remind myself in that category. I'm a profitable trader, but I'm not a particularly good trader. So, um, and the rest of the world who really don't want, if they're going to do what they want to, their ideal would be maybe, oh, if I could spend an hour a week and make 100% a year, you know, I, that would be okay. And that's why they buy all this stuff, which is worthless. But um, but for, for that world, which they're not, they, trading, investing is not a passion. They're not willing to vote or don't have the time to devote time to learn the skill to develop a methodology they're better off just you know acting as if the markets were efficient so i think it depends what category uh now can anybody can anybody you know uh, turn into a market wizard no of course not uh no more than every uh any every running uh condo is going to run a marathon time no matter how devoted they are you'll only yeah. have a tiny percentage of in any endeavor whether it's music or or uh, sports or trading, you know, any field, there's only going to be a small percentage that are truly outstanding. And, uh, and but that doesn't mean that you know there's plenty of musicians around the world that are that are perfectly good, yeah, excellent. But they're not they're not soloist level in front of a major philharmonic, you know, philharmonic orchestra. Yeah. Doesn't mean that they're not talented, you know. So. Is all there's also and there's and you know, community orchestras have have musicians who are perfectly fine. Uh, it doesn't mean that they there's anything wrong, they're successful, but they're not they're not like out of this world, you know, skilled, right? So yeah, so in any profession that's true, and training's no different. But can people become that profitable? I think most people they just like you know, running a marathon, uh it's you can you can't get closer. You couldn't run a mile if you're out of shape. You can't run a mile, but if you're devoted, and even if you're out of shape, if you're really rigorous about it, you know you can eventually run a marathon. Almost anybody can. It's very difficult. It takes a lot of work, but it can be done. Um, but they're not going to run a marathon. You know, a world class time. So same with trading. Devote enough time. Have the passion. Uh, do the work. Develop develop the approach develop enough of a capability type of, uh, uh, you know, in, in, which, in the endeavor, in this case is trading. And then you can, I think most people could at least get to the point where they are net profitable. I don't know what percentage that is, but let's say a meaningful percentage. I don't know, it's more than 50% or less, but, but a meaningful percentage of people with the proper work and devotion can reach some level of, of capability. Now, there was a lot of, um, in this book in particular, I guess in all of the books, but I felt there was quite a lot in this book about the sort of emotional difficulty of being a trader. You know, there was uh, one line I really liked, and it was someone described it as being a hard way to make an easy living. Yeah. And do you think, like, I I almost think, like, when we talk back to Taylor and behavioral uh, finance, 
do you think that one of the, it, it would seem to me that one of the difficulties in doing well in the market is often it involves stepping away from the crowd, like it involves not having a consensus opinion. And is that the, is there just a certain um, mindset of people who are able to really just hold their own way? Or how, how do you think that works? Is that what trips up the average person? Well, I think the ability to go against a crowd is, is a certain type of trading. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, like in one chapter in this book, uh, which focuses on a purely contrarian trader, that is his approach. I mean, literally, he's always literally, you know, you know the old advice of don't try to pick spot tops and bottoms. Well, that's literally what he, that is how he earns his living. He picks yeah. tops and bottoms. Uh, so, but that's a specific type of trading style. It's not right for a lot of people. It may be perfect. For, like he has this net personality, which he likes to be on him. That's him, you know, he just, that's his, so he found an approach that really works with his personality. Now you have to marry that to risk management. Otherwise that type of approach will, will kill you. But he has done that and that's why he's successful. Um, as far as, as the, the difficulty or the emotion, you know, it, yeah, it's not, you know, I, I have a line in one of my books, uh, like there are a million ways to make money in the markets, but they're all difficult to find. And yeah. so it is difficult to find an approach that really does have an edge and that works for the person. It can take, and number of traders talk about it taking, it should, people should think of at least three to five years before they reach that point. You know, it could be 10 years, you know, it, it could take a long time. And, and so there is that element of, of hard work involved. And I have found that traders, almost all traders that I interview tend to be by nature, hard workers. They're really, you know, uh, like, I mean, you just repeatedly throughout this book, you could see these people devoting, like one, one uh, Amrit Sal talking about that when he first got into trading, he would literally spend 18 hours a day, you know, just trying to absorb everything and learn. And, and, and to this day, and he, you talk about the, the, emo, the, the emotion of folk, keeping emotions in control and focus, he literally, you know, he will plan, he has these big trades he plans for, usually centered around events. And he will before that. Before he does all the research and, and and preparation, and writes out a whole strategy of what he's going to do, and he he goes back to old trades in similar markets, and he's very prepared. But the day of the before the trade it's trade itself, before the event itself, he'll he'll do meditation, he'll do breath work, he'll get in what he calls uh he calls it I think a deep now state, and he gets just totally focused. There's nothing. You know, his fingers on the mouse. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's waiting for the news announcement, and his world is confined to that screen. Does not. That's hundred percent of his focus. I think the room could catch fire, and he wouldn't know. He's that mm. focused. Uh, so yeah, and that's total control of your emotions. Basically, you've planned everything out. You know what you're going to do. You've relaxed your your mind and body. You're very focused, and. You, if you're going to be wrong, you know your reaction is ready to be planned. And he's the type of trader that if it doesn't, if the market doesn't behave as he expects, he'll be out. He'll be out in less than a minute. So, yeah. 
Well, I actually, one of the things I thought that was interesting in this book, and in particular, it seemed to be a big idea amongst the, the group that you met in London. There were about three different traders that were all sort of part of a group. And there was almost a feeling in there of the idea of trading as a form of self-improvement. And this is, is slightly something I've felt for years working as a trader, is that when you're when you're doing this job when you're when you're buying and selling and you're being right and wrong and i guess the big difference between trading and investing is just the the holding period and for at least for me i'm quite a short term trader and i'm i really know how much i'm right and how much i'm wrong and maybe that's a difficult thing for people to to get into their heads because i think people want to think that they're they're always right um and and to a certain extent, there was a lot of this idea of kind of, you know, that you had to, that, that trading expo exposes your flaws. And I thought that was a very interesting idea because I think it's it's very true. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you mentioned like one of these, I think it's true of all three of those traders because they, they you know, knew each other and were in the same environment and developed some of the same attitudes and approaches. And I think Amrit, who was the oldest of the one, you know, the first of the group that was a trader, you know, he came, uh, Dalgit came a few years later and uh, uh, Richard a couple of years after that. But uh, this idea of keeping these daily records of everything that you've done and, you know, like somebody like Richard Barge, who's the last of the three, um, yeah. I mean, he showed, he, like, he has a spreadsheet and on a spreadsheet, I'll have a bunch of different columns, which you have to do with different types of emotions. And if he displayed that type of emotion or did that type of uh, emotional type of trade, he'll he'll check he'll check that box. Uh, for example, he has uh, I mean, he has like, like twenty different things, but like one of them he calls sugar trades. I said, "What is a sugar trade?" Well, a sugar trade is any trade that's not pre-planned and that's really not part of your methodology. You just want to take the trade, you know, just like entertainment or for excitement or whatever. And, you know, of course, you don't want to take sugar trades, but if he, if he occasionally lapses and does it, he'll check that box. So at the end of the week, he'll see what boxes are checked. You know, it's basically an emotional scorecard. And those are the, those are the areas he has to work towards self-improvement. And, uh, and Richard also, interesting in the book, and for any of the listeners who might uh, have, have dealt with, with depression, I mean, he had really serious problems with depression. And, uh, you know, the same types of skills he had to develop for, I, you know, the fact getting into trading probably led to his, you know, getting a, you know, curing himself of, of depression in that he realized that he couldn't be successful as a trader if he still had to be dealing with depression. So, that sort of motivated him to deal with that problem as well. But a lot of the same emotional things overlap in both areas. And, um, you know, so the, absolutely, you know, your your assumption or your premise is correct. Now, an another interesting thing in there is there's often this story with, with great traders. There's sort of the story of their early failures and then they learn and come back. And I, I guess I, I wanted to ask your thoughts on this idea. Like is 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 failure itself necessary, or is that just a symptom of someone who really tries? Um, and is, is it just a mindset of not giving up that helps, or what is it? Do you think that sort of ties in? Because 
some of your traders, they they had no history of failure. It just worked from the get-go. Um, and I thought there was one idea that was interesting in there where someone put forth that failure is just feedback, right? Because you do a trade and it either works or it doesn't work. When it doesn't work, that's feedback. And you need that feedback in order to learn and to work out what you're doing wrong. And that reminded me a little bit of... Um, I can't think of the name of the book, but by Annie Duke, the poker player, where she talked about how the great players really analyze their, you know, the bad players just go, oh, well, that was a bad beat. I should have won, but I didn't. While the great players sit down and say, what could I have done differently? Like, where's the mistake? What are your thoughts on yeah, that? So, so you raise two important areas. Firstly, the failure at the beginning of a trading, in the early years of a trading career. And second, about feedback. So let me talk about them separately. Uh, so one surprising thing I had from the very first Market Wizards book was how many of these traders had early trading year experiences of wiping out sometimes multiple times. And that's still true in this book as well, as you know. You know uh, uh, so there, there are two lessons to draw from that. One is that early failure is not necessarily predictive of future, you know, of future failure. You, know. you can fail miserably in the beginning, and still be enormously successful. And, and a second is that these people who became market wizards obviously had great resilience, great conviction and belief, and just stay with itness. Uh, uh, because to to why you know the classic the classic would be Michael Marcus in the first Market Wizards book, and I won't go through it, but there are so many repeated failures, and I'd be coming you become exasperated just listening. And I, at one point, I think I say, did you ever maybe think that you weren't cut out to be a trader? And he just said, no, he kind of just, he had its inner voice that just said to you, you know, you could do this. You could. And uh, I mean, he went on to to, to take a $30,000 account at 80 million. Uh, so, but he had, you know, most people would have quit many times before he got to that point, but he had this, this inner belief center drive. So yeah, that is that is an important element. Now early failure doesn't mean so it doesn't mean you're gonna eventually succeed. Yeah. But it, but the important point is it doesn't mean that you that you can't succeed. It yeah. just means you have to use now we go to the feedback. You have to use those early failures as as instruction. And uh, it's this important lesson is the you have to learn from failures. This is like I don't know how many times traders have brought this up repeatedly, time after time. The classic example is Ray Dalio of Bridgewater, who basically built this, the world's largest hedge fund on a philosophy that failure is the most important thing you, because from failure, you can learn how to improve what you're doing. And uh, that's his basic philosophy. Uh, and, you know, like I say, he's, he built the world's largest hedge fund on that basic premise. Uh, in this book is a good example of, of, of learning from failure. So the, the, the contrarian, uh, Jason Shapiro, early first decade of trading, he you know managed to run up accounts like from whatever, 100,000 to somewhere close to a million. And each time he totally wiped out the account. And the second time, the second time on the while he was making money, he bought a Porsche, which is fortunate because when he wiped out the account the second time, at least he had the car. You know, we had something left over, but two times it completely blew out, and yeah, and he went on to be quite successful. But what the change was that he recognized what he was doing wrong. 
he yeah. recognized that he was fighting. Yes, his nature is to fight markets, but he finally understood that he, he can't fight markets without having a risk management strategy. Yeah. He has to know, you know, he can't just say, I think this market is, is overboard. It's, I'm going to go short here. He had to develop a methodology that identified particular points where that made sense and that allowed him to place a stop with a reason that, that he could take that trade and not lose too much if he's wrong. Yeah. And he, one of the things he says in that chapter is, I will never, ever, ever not, you know, uh, not uh, let my stop uh, operate. You know, so that's, that's a religion now. And he talks about how he sees people and he sees himself and what, how they were wrong, you know, how they're making the same mistakes he made. And he can use them almost as contrary indicators. And he emphasizes, not because he says he's smarter than they are, because he recognizes himself in at an earlier time in them. And therefore, and he knows how wrong that is. He knows how that ends. He knows that ends up with, with, they'll eventually get wiped out. And and he can use, he can almost use them as contrary indicators. Yeah. Now that, that almost leads to another thing that I thought was quite interesting in there was that there was a lot of the different traders from different backgrounds and different approaches um, all talked about how markets have changed. You know, it started out with Peter Brandt, who's been at it probably the longest. Um, near, near the end, you, you got to a guy, a systematic trader, which is someone that I can relate a little more to. But in his in his story, he very much because he kept all of his old programs, he was able to say which ones worked, which one didn't, when they stopped, and so on. And I've always believed, uh, you know, kind of from my background of working with Vic Niederhofer and just from doing this for twenty years, I've always believed that markets are continually changing and that you have to expect change. Now, I think with a systematic trader they see the change very starkly because you just see a system that did work that no longer works. But to a certain extent, I kind of got the feeling that, that with the discretionary traders, maybe they um, you know, didn't uh, sort of outwardly have a statement that a given system was no longer working, but that they just sort of adjusted based once again on this market feedback to because Brandt really described that he had moved, uh, you know, his initial classical technical approach was very different to what he does today. Yeah, so I think for both discretionary and systematic traders, this adaptability is important, you know, is, is critical. And uh, so, uh, you know, like a, a trader uh, like uh, Amrit uh, and Dalgert, Richard, all, all three of them to some extent, but in you know one of the things is initially uh, they would like have an opinion on which way an event would, would go or it would be a surprise they would go immediately they would go immediately with any surprise and that that might have worked originally but then you got programming progressing so far that you now had algorithms that would look for words and those algorithms could could respond more, much more quick, you know, impossible for humans to compete. So uh, I forget, if, I think it may have been I forget which one, which one it was, but mentioned that, you know, Trent changed his approach from that to actually letting the first reaction go and then actually waiting for that to go too far and then trading, you know, almost the opposite, almost yeah. a reversal of the original strategy. Uh, 
the, the systematic and, and brand, as you mentioned, going from a classical chart analyst, seeing chart patterns no longer work and adapting to that and changing, still using charts, but using them differently. And yeah. then you have the, the, the uh, systematic trader, uh, uh, Marston Parker that you mentioned, that was fascinating because, yeah, so he's a, he's a, he got into trading by being a software guy. He wasn't a trader. He's yeah. being a software developer that he got into it. And so he's being, having been a software developer, every set, God knows how many systems he's developed, but every system, every system variation, he could pull it up on a screen, you know, what it, you know, what it, what it's done from the very start, from when he researched it, what, uh, when he traded it, when he stopped trading it. So initially in his early years, he was using this uh, uh, combination of systems and it was making steadily, it was doing very well. And then all of a sudden it started just not working, you know, it started losing money, yeah. money, the money. And he decided that the markets had just gotten quicker. He was trading on on close after the close. Yeah. So he had he had to anticipate. He had to anticipate, you know, and he used volume as a, as a as part of it. So he had he had to anticipate when a market was going to meet the conditions on a close. And and that and that ended up being a very smart thing. But I said you have the original systems, you know, that you drop. And it was yeah. the most remarkable thing. He puts up this chart on the screen, and it's like a it's like a hill. It goes steadily up, and then it goes starts going down. And he gets out after four or five months. But that was like ten years ago, whatever number of years, and it's never worked since. It just continually lost money. Yeah. And so, and this happened to him a number of times. So, had he not adapted, had he said, "Oh, I'm going to this system has worked. I'm going to stick with the system. I'm not changing it." You would have been wiped out multiple times. Well, it's interesting because it's almost the idea that, like, we'll, we'll say an animal in the wild, like, it can't sort of feed at the same place every day or eventually the other animals know to stay away. And I think uh, even the timing around his first change in markets, it reminded me when I first started out in kind of 2000, 2001, we had, uh, you know, the first DMA machines for, for trading into the market without a broker. And I look back at how much easier it was back then simply because you had all the old fashioned guys at the mutual funds who would just throw these massive trades into the market like a brick. And you would just, you know, in trading futures, you could take the other side of either a spike or a decline right at the close and get out of it 15 minutes later when the market calmed down. And, you know, that was something that kind of worked for about five years, but then there was just a point at which they weren't making that mistake anymore. They had the same machines we had and it, it just couldn't work. Yeah, so you have to you have to adapt. Another big theme that came up an awful lot in this, and it's almost a thing that goes back to, you know, you read about this when you read, um, you know, Jesse Livermore's trading system as well. The importance of not trading, you know, there was a lot of the sugar trades is the, is the very idea that there's sort of, and, and I think Monroe Trout, I believe, used to have his traders, they weren't allowed to look at prices on their, on their screens. They had to just do analysis and then put the trades in. But th this thing of, um, you know, if you put someone at a trading terminal with nothing much to do all day long, you know, it's analysis or, you know, trade the ticks in the S&Ps, they'll trade the ticks in the S&Ps, even though that's, uh, you know, negative NPV trading. And I noticed that some of the guys, there was one guy uh, towards the end, one of the stock traders who had had a job and traded, and then he quit his job and started trading full time. And almost this was his problem was that, 
now he had a free the free time to trade the ticks and had to stop doing it. Yeah, so that's that's you. That's quite an important point. Is um, and I, I use a there's a quote by Debussy that I like a lot, uh, which is uh, and I see you're a musician. I think it's <laughs> a very bad um, one, <laughs> but it's basically uh, music is the space between the notes mm. and. Uh, I love you know I love that quote because it's so apropos of the trading, because you know in a way trading is is the space between the trades. Now, so I can think of uh, one one great example. Uh, uh, you know, uh, well, there's been a number of examples, but uh, there's one trader I interviewed in, in in hedge fund market wizards who basically started. He he called himself a. a, a you know, he calls himself a long short trader, but when I really got down to digging in, it turns out he's never had a double digit short position. So mm -hmm. always the shorts are like single digit. And so it's never a big part of his thing. So really, he really is more like a long, long only trader. Started his fund in October, 99. Uh, I mean, it could have been worse timing. He could have started in January 2000, but it, or February 2000, but it's pretty close to a horrible time to start, yeah. start on, you know, uh, particularly you know, for a long, for a predominantly long only trader. So when I had interviewed him, uh, it was, uh, I guess he had about a dozen years past that point. And he was up cumulatively before, before his, uh, uh, you know, profit and say, before the fees, but just on his trading, or you can think of his own account portion. He was up like about 900% cumulatively. Wow. S&P during the same time was flat, literally flat. I don't know, either side of zero by 10%. Yeah. So how does a guy who's predominantly long only, you know, accumulate 900% return, you know, compounded uh, when, the, when the index is itself flat? I mean, and it was flat because his starting point was near one peak. You had the big bear market in 2000, 2002, and then... You had the other big bear market again too. So he, he his his track record encompassed two giant bear markets. Uh, so the answer was, of course, he was a very good stock picker. That's part of it, but a really important part of it is that he didn't feel he had to trade all the time. And so when the market was just not right, he just didn't trade much. So mm -hmm. during 2000, 2002, you know, he actually was up in a little bit during that period. He made a few trades, but he didn't trade much. And then in 2008, he lost, I think single digits, but yeah, that's a lot better than having a 50% drawdown. And yeah. uh, and again, because he didn't trade much. So his success really was to his ability to not trade. And uh, and, and talking about the screens, that reminds me of Sakoda. When I when I interviewed Sakoda, I kind of, you know, at one point I looked around and said, where's your quote screen? And he said, having a quote screen on your desk is like having a slot machine. You keep on feeding it quarters all day long. So uh, he just had a system and he put in his orders that he didn't want to, he didn't want the temptation of looking at the market intraday. Yeah. Now, a, an interesting thing as well in, in this book, like there were some really like massive returns um, that some of these guys had generated. But towards the end of the book, you pointed out, I think it was Parker was the guy with the longest track record. He had been trading, I think it was 22 years. And I think you looked at a 20-year record of his, and he had a return of about 20% a, a year. And 
I guess I wonder, because you've, you've been following the greatest traders in the world for, uh, you know, uh, quite a while now. Um, what do you think, like, when we look at, often people say to me, like, what can, a, what can a great trader earn? And I say to them, well, if you look at the returns of the greatest traders who've been doing it for a long time, if you look at people like Soros or Buffett or Jim Simons or any of these people, to a reasonable extent, I would say that your long-term, like 20 to 30-year return expectation is probably a little bit capped by at that level, like, uh, you know, there's one, one of the things that's funny about running this YouTube channel is that when you when you put financial content up on YouTube, you get all these ads on your channel and they're all for sort of trading coaches. And there's there's one in particular who tells people that they can generate a 2% daily return every day on, on their, uh, on their trading. If they, if they sell you that system, Jack, for two grand. So I would advise you to sign up, <laughs> but, um, you know, what are your thoughts on like, what is a reasonable, a reasonable, hugely outsized return over a long period of time? So, yeah. So actually, but I should correct, you know, uh, Parker didn't have the longest, probably Brand is the longest record. I oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, but like 35 years or whatever. But, um, and, and Grant's over that whole period compounded around 58%. But uh, so how much, I think the classic example is somebody like Druckenmiller, uh, who, and, you know, he went on for many years after I interviewed him. You know, he still traded for like 20 years after I interviewed him. But I think his career from his, his original fund, uh, his original fund until he retired, I think, was roughly about 30 years. I think he compounded close to 30% a year. I mean, that's kind of sort of like classic, phenomenal track record worth, worth size money. In this book, you do have people like Sal Amrit, uh, who, uh, who I guess about 13 years and 300%, but but that's on a small amount of money. And yeah. I, and if he had allowed his money to compound, he couldn't do that. You know, it's just he kept pulling money out. And even now, still trading a couple of million, maybe. But, you know, that type of 300% compounding would have made the size, you know, way larger. So uh, Augustine knows what size he can, he trades very aggressively. And he knows at what size he can trade that at. So I think it, the question depends not only on the length of the track record, but whether you allow the account to grow, compound. Uh, you allow the compound becomes almost like something like Bruce Kovner when I interviewed him I believe he had like close to a 90% average return for 10 years which is a long record yeah right but you know I'm sure I don't know what his record was afterwards but he after he found Caxton and it was a firm managing 10 20 billion or whatever surely you know we know I mean I don't have to look I it's impossible to keep those type of returns with your managing really big size so it's a function of how much money is under management and the length of track record. Uh, there is one trader in here, Jeff Newman, who, who literally started with $2,500, I believe about 15 years ago or so. And when I interviewed him, he was up to 50 million. Uh, and the kicker is I just kind of, you know, he still, he keeps in touch since we, uh, since, since I met him. And yesterday, literally yesterday, he sent me a, a message saying, I just did a hundred million uh, for the year. And that's like a crazy number. And I say a hundred million cumulatively, meaning he turned 50 into a hundred. 
that it's, though he said, no, he, he's literally made another hundred million this year. So, and this is a guy who saw $2,500 and this is 15 years ago. And he is, you know, not trading real money. I mean, you know, I, yeah, yeah. an individual, right? I mean, the 50 million, uh, so, you know, it's going to 150 million uh, in one year. So, you know, there are, there are some people who, you know, but he's extraordinary. So I, I think there are, you know, some people can push to the envelope, but realistically speaking, for what's a reasonable expectation, if you could do plus 20% for 20 years plus, you, you're doing very well. One of the things that I really enjoy about the book and, and all of the books, because by the way, I've often recommended your books to people, but and they say, well, which one should I get? And I kind of say, well, you should get them all because they're all, you know what I mean? They're a series and they all, there's not like one that'll tell you more than another. One of the things I thought was very interesting about this one is just how fresh it is. I mean, there's some of the interviews in there that are probably two, three months old. Is that, is that correct? Well, I did the interviews uh, in uh, in ninety uh, in uh, two thousand nineteen, and I did some. Uh, I did a a couple that were in, in this in this year, uh, so yeah, they're they're fairly recent uh, for the you know for the most part. Yeah, uh, there was only there were two interviews that were done this year. Uh, the others were wound up by the fourth quarter, uh, at the fourth quarter before the fourth quarter. Of, 2019. The two exceptions were Shapiro, because he he didn't want to do an interview, he didn't want to participate, and he was coming. He is a he is one of those traders who my book kind of was the first book he read on trade, you know, about trade, or well, the first influential book, and it sort of got him, you know, it sort of gave him. It was a it was an influential book, and he wanted to for him, and he wanted to. He asked if he could meet me. He was I lived. I was in Boulder and he wanted to, he had a wedding in Boulder, he asked if we can get together. I, I said, sure, he was telling me a bit about his, his history. And I said, well, that's pretty interesting. Uh, you know, would you, you know, would you want to do an interview? And he said, no, nah, I don't want, I just don't want that. I'll say I don't want to do it. And he refused a number of times. So when I met him, we, uh, you know, we just talked for a couple of hours and I didn't, I didn't turn on because I asked him again, is it okay if I turn on the recording? He said, no, I really don't want it. And it was a, you know, fascinating conversation. And, and sort of when I had gotten the book, I was working on a book and the next, uh, so six months or uh, four or five months later, I figured I'd email and I said, look, you know, I still think it'd be great in this book. Um, sort of, you know, would you reconsider? And went back and forth and I get an email finally saying, look, I'm really sorry. I really appreciate what you do and everything else, but I don't want to participate. And literally, literally less than a minute later, I get a second email that says, screw it, let's do it. So, <laughs> so I did that, uh, I did that by uh, video conference uh, because I'd already spoken to him, I'd already met him. And, uh, you know, so it was, you know, so we had the conversation again. So that, but that was the first time I ever did an interview that wasn't live for any of the market, was his books. And then there was a second exception because, because of COVID, I was no, no longer traveling. And it was a trader I wanted to get to that I didn't get to. Uh, there were more than one, but there was one. And uh, so I did that on video uh, because that was the only practical way to do it. Now, how, how do these people react when you, you contact them? Because just to kind of tell you a, a funny story, when, when you first called me, I think about 
probably about eight years ago. I, I don't know if you remember our phone call, but I, I at first I was a bit confused when I was on the phone with you because I've been a big fan of your books for years and I have them all around the office and I recommend them to all sorts of people. And so, you know, a lot of my friends would know that I'm a, a big fan of your writing. So then I got a phone call and it's, it's Jack Schwager on the end of the line. And I was pretty sure that it was one of my friends winding me up. You know, I kind of thought it was like a, an Ali G type thing. And I'd be told like, you idiot, Jack Schwager wouldn't call you up. Uh, so how, how do people react when you contact them? Because I, I got the feeling most of them kind of had read your books. Yeah, at this point, you know, it's it's you know, big difference from the first Walker was book, obviously, where people did know. I, well, I knew a couple of traders personally, um, and now, and even the the book before the Hedgeford Marker was his book. Um, I'd say that I, I don't know if all of them, you know, know who I am or read my books, but certainly a majority of them have, and and I, it's kind of almost amazing how many of them say it was like the influential book in there, you know, it was a book that got them into trading and stuff. So, uh, so I get that. So that's kind of, well, that's a, that's a big advantage because they already know who I am and they benefited because the book was positively influential in their life. And so it makes a yes much easier. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if they're surprised or whatever, uh, or not. Uh, I, you know, usually the first contact is by email. So, I don't really see, I don't see what their response is, you know, yeah. what they answer. Well, I, I guess I, I would wrap up just by saying that, you know, I strongly do recommend this book to my, my viewers out there. And I think one of the, one of the real reasons I recommend it, because there are other books that sort of interview traders. But I think one of the, the reasons these books are so good is that Jack is a trader himself and he kind of asks all the right questions. Like as I'm reading the book, I'm going along and I'm thinking, yeah, but he, what, what about this? What about this? And, and sure enough, Jack will ask the very question that I would ask. And actually back to our first conversation, you know, my, my partner was sitting next to me when I was on the phone with you. And she said to me after a while, she said, you know, after I hung up, she said, you really gave him an awful lot more information than you usually give out. And I said, well, he just asks all the right questions. <laughs> yeah, actually, one of my pet peeves with interviewers, I'm not talking about training, but generally interviews in general, you know, and is, you know, ask this, you know, you're waiting for them to ask this question, ask this, you know, like, it's like, you know, it's like grading that, why don't you know somebody says something and it's such an obvious follow-up and they don't ask it? It just irritates me. But you have then but you have I love interviewers who do ask somebody like Terry Gross on this uh podcast Fresh Air, who's been a you know great interviewer for a year, probably one of the best in my mind, maybe the best ever. Uh, but she always, almost always will ask if there's a question I have, if it's not asked immediately, she'll come back to it. So she yeah. does, yeah, and I really like that. So I guess I try to emulate that, or, or I'm at least conscious of it. I'm conscious of ask ask the obvious question, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for for coming on my channel. I'll put a link to Jack's book in the description below, and I strongly, strongly recommend it. And and in truth, all of his other books because they're all uh, you know huge value added. And thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Patrick.
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.